Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, guys? In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Sandra Shaw Homer. She's an author and an environmentalist, and she's recently written the book, Abelio's Garden, a memoir of a naturalist in Costa Rica, which chronicles a year in Sandra's life living in Costa Rica, and essentially follows her and Abelio, a hired hand, as they try and create a organic garden, which becomes essentially an organic farm on their land. Um, it's not that easy. <laughs> to create an organic farm, especially in Costa Rica, especially with a lot of the environmental issues that they run into. Um, so much of the book chronicles that and talks about you know the changes they've had to deal with just in the course of a year. A lot of that was spawned by climate change. But on top of that, Sandra also had a very tumultuous life during this period. So she had to deal with divorce and suicide and parental issues all while living and navigating a foreign country and you know at least in the in the beginning times of foreign language so uh, all a very incredibly interesting read uh, I really enjoyed it um, I will most likely read it again and recommend it to anyone I think fits the mold who's essentially anyone who is interested in environmental issues and really the peace that comes with being in nature. Sandra does an incredible job of capturing that on many different occasions. You can tell she's an environmentalist at heart and it's really um, it's really refreshing to see someone capture that in this day and age where you feel like a lot of it, a lot of what we're surrounded by is quite digital. Um, so she does a very good job of capturing the natural world. As always, I hope you enjoy and if so, please rate, review, and subscribe. And frankly, even if you don't, um, Please write, review, and subscribe anyways, but give it a positive review. And tell a friend, will you? All right. Well, thanks. Enjoy. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Sandra Shaw Homer, the author of Avilio's Garden, which is a memoir that chronicles a year of her life living in Costa Rica and is a great read that intertwines conservation issues along with her at times tumultuous personal life. So thank you so much for joining me, Sandra. Thank you for asking me, Brian. It's nice to be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I read Avilio's Garden. It's an incredible read. Um, really enjoyed it. Really engaging. The book begins with a decision to move to, just kind of up and move to Costa Rica back in 1991. I'm wondering if you, or excuse me, 1990. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about your career and your personal arc before you moved to Costa Rica. Kind of like what spawned that decision for you and your husband at the time uh, to move there? Um, my husband and I were partners in uh, a small um, marketing, consulting, and public relations firm in Philadelphia, and uh, um, we were getting burned out. You know, when you're when you're married to your partner, clients feel they can call you at all hours of the day and night, and that was um, it was just a little bit too intense. Both of us had been working for a lot of years, and um, this partnership was fairly new, and um, it didn't work for us. And we were both of an age where we felt, um, well, it would be nice to live in a kinder climate, with a nicer, uh, in a nicer culture, where we could do the things we really like to do. My husband liked to garden and to fish. I wanted to get serious about writing. And um, 
we just happened to run into an honorary consul from Costa Rica who explained to us the ease with which we could get uh, a residency here. And it was fantastic. We just oh, wow. sort of fell into it. Yeah. So um, we came down on some exploratory trips and uh, eventually bought uh, a beautiful property with a long view of the countryside. And, and um, I just felt something kind of filling up in me. I, I grew up in the country, and, but I had lived in cities all my adult life. And it was a, um, it was a wonderful revelation to remember my, uh, my connection to the the real world. Yeah, I can imagine. I might have been, I don't know, eight years ago now, 10 years ago, but I moved to Thailand for a few years. Um, ah. It was right out, out of school. Yeah. And I kind of felt that. And we, I want to talk about that too, because you mentioned that in the book, the oneness, the connection that you had with nature and, and particular times where you felt that, uh, that, that feeling grow inside of you. Uh, but I feel like yeah, it's, yeah. you know, something that only nature can do and only a close relationship with it can do. I agree with you totally. It's um, uh, something that I wish all of us had. Yeah. And it's something you can, you know, it's easy to forget. I mean, it sounded like you had a pretty stressful life before that. And it's, you know, if you go back into life after a respite in nature, it is something to, that's easy to forget. And that's easy. You need to really maintain a connective tissue with that. Yes, it's very important. You know, living in cities, it's very hard to connect. <laughs> yeah. Very hard. So as the name implies, the book is about, well, kind of a local hired hand named Vilio and his struggle to create a sustainable organic garden. Um, there's a lot he had to deal with. There's a lot of issues that came up. Uh, can you talk about, like, first, why he initially decided to become an organic gardener and what are some of the issues that he faced in this, you know, in this process. Well, this year in which uh, that I chronicle in, in the book um, was uh, a very difficult year for Avelio. Farming was not new to him. He'd grown up on a small sustainable holding that was owned by his parents and before that his grandparents. So he was familiar with the, uh, um, you know, non-chemical farming. But uh, he, he got the idea that an organic garden was something special. But it turned out that it was basically what he'd been doing all his life. And it took him about six months to figure that out. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the weather just it was brutal. Um, it, it, we're experiencing climate change here. And um, what used to be predictable uh, is no longer in terms of wind and rain and sun. And uh, so, you know, he'd lose a crop of one thing and they'd start over with another. And uh, uh, I was kind of his um, cheerleader through all of this because he, he was taking these challenges personally. You know, it was as if uh, uh, God was, you know, beating up on him. <laughs> and he just, uh, so he needed, he needed a lot of reinforcement. And, uh, I had just started writing a book about about the natural world around me. I mean, I was I was I had been very busy with environmental work for a number of years, and it was like having a full time job. And finally, um, I just had to quit. The, the stress level was again too high, wow. and um, and I, I decided, well, if you're going to start writing again, Sandy, you better start practicing. So. 
I was very fascinated by all the biodiversity around us on our farm, and uh, I wanted to learn more about it, and, and I wanted to be able to write about it in a way that was... Uh, uh, one person described it as lush, the descriptions of the... Um, the natural world are are uh, are very in keeping with the, the lushness of our environment. I wanted to bring that through in the writing, and uh, uh, Costa Rica is one of the most biodiverse places in the in the world because it's a land bridge between two continents, and um, so we have animals that came up from the south and plants that came down from the north, and it's a it's an incredible mix, and uh, as a consequence, what what has happened is because there are so many microclimates here. You know, we've got mountains, we've got volcanoes, we've got savanna, we've got um, dry forest, we've got wet tropical forest, we've got beaches. You know, it's just a, a whole bunch of different uh, microclimates, and as a consequence, uh, uh, animals and plants became very specialized and very um, connected to. Uh, their little environments, their little ecosystems. And um, what we're starting to notice with, with climate change is that um, as things heat up, some of those little microclimates no longer function. And so you start to see extinctions or you start to see animals moving up uphill from the hotter lowlands into the, into the mountains where we are. So it's... Um, Anyway, <laughs> I'm sort of digressing, no, but no, um, perfect. <laughs> I, I was fascinated by this whole process, uh, aside from saddened by it, but also fascinated, and I wanted to write about it, and I wanted to, um, Evelio, because he was constantly driving me crazy, just bugging <laughs> me every day for one thing or another, I decided to write about him too, so it turned into a memoir and a, and a story of my connection to the natural world as well as uh, the story of Avelio and his and his garden. Yeah, I was going to say he seemed to have a lot of like idiosyncrasies, like you know, like you mentioned first coming to the conclusion of what organic was, and it seemed like you had to keep reminding him of what it was and what it entailed. Um, it seemed like it kind of you know could have pushed anyone's patience to the limit <laughs> in some respects. <laughs> Well, that's one thing you have to learn when you live in a country like this, and that's patience. When you live in any country, any country other than your own, and you've lived in Thailand, so you know um, that moving into another culture, you just uh, are kind of a naked and, and uh, uh, helpless. Yeah, um, Because you don't, you don't know what, what, how things go and what people think and do and talk about and, and what's important. And... Uh, here I discovered a whole set of values that just really resonated with me, and um, um, you know, I've been here almost 30 years, so it's a testament to how comfortable I am in this environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was there ever a time that you, I mean, it seemed like once you moved, you knew that that was your new, your future home. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we'd come down a couple of times, two, three times before we actually made the move. It took about a year and a half to close up shop uh, in, in Philadelphia and, and sell our house and so on. Um, but, uh, yeah, this was going to be it. We, we, both, uh, we both decided this was going to be a permanent move. And um, that's a very, very challenging thing to try to do when you don't speak the language and you... Um, don't know how anything works 
Um, so it um, it takes a while to adapt. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of a learning curve. Um, you know, initially when you first move in, uh, I know I had like second second guesses if it was something I wanted to do or a place I wanted to stay. Um, but yeah, it was quite refreshing at the same time. Yeah, it's new. The novelty really carries you through a lot. Uh, and, and the people here are very, very kind. Um, they just sort of took, took us in hand, you know, like we were little children and, and <laughs> taught us, literally taught us um, how things worked here. Uh, there were not many English speakers around at the time. This was 1990, and um, you could count them on the fingers of one hand. So uh, we were forced into the language of Spanish. Um, yeah, you just didn't have a choice. So uh, um, I, I took that on as a challenge. I wanted to be bilingual for the first time in my life. I've been uh, languages come easy to me, and I I forget them just as easily. So this time I wanted to become truly bilingual, which has served me very well. But um, my husband, uh, he just didn't um, he he didn't fall through that open door. Hmm. That you know when you when you go into another country and another language and another culture. It is a door opening uh, into a new life for yourself, and um, he got stuck. And um, he had always been a heavy drinker, and just um, he just started drinking from morning till night, and it was um, it was brutal. Um, one tries to help an alcoholic uh, in many ways, but. Um, the alcoholic starts to make you feel responsible for everything that's going wrong in his life. And um, at some point, you just, at least me, I, I couldn't feel responsible anymore. So um, I left. Yeah. It, was, it was a very difficult, a very difficult time in, in, in my life, but it was a very key time here because I was determined to stay. Um, my father said, uh, why don't you get a job and you know, go home and get a job? And I thought, well, no, I'm going to stay here. And get a job, which is what I did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine how long. How long had you been in Costa Rica at that point? About six years. Yeah, I mean that's a, a significant amount of time, but it's still, you know, you might not have found the community yet, or it's still, you know, it's still never easy going through a a, a breakup such as that, especially in a new country. Right. Right, and of course we had to discover all kinds of things about the law and divorce in Costa Rica and so on and so forth, so that was you know, um, a learning experience. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, I can only imagine. And at this, you know, the entire time, here you are in a new culture, here you are in a new country, um, and you know, and, and you are dealing with a lot of you know, profound internal change and external change, like you were mentioning earlier with the uh, you initially started writing this book for posterity. It seems like a lot of these articles or a lot of these uh, vignettes, if you will, kind of came up. But then it really kind of became something that you were chronicling both the garden, but also the environmental changes around you, which you touched upon a bit earlier. Um, what are the biggest changes you noticed throughout this period? What are the biggest the differences from when you moved there to you know even present day? Well, 
you know, in, in the tropics, you basically have two seasons, um, rainy season and dry season. And that's true. It had, had typically been true for, I don't know, thousands of years. Um, uh, rainy season tends to run from, uh, from May to December and dry season runs from December to May. So, uh, that's very predictable. And when we first moved here in 1990, that was, um, that was right on. I mean, you could kind of look at your watch and count when it was going to start raining in the afternoon. Um, but that uh, doesn't happen anymore, at least not, not here around the lake where I live. Um, I thought we were in dry season a week ago, and then uh, yesterday there's some heavy rains came through. It's just really, it's getting less predictable. And so when you're, when you're farming, when you're, when you're growing things, um, you want weather to be more predictable. You want to be able to count on, uh, certain conditions to be able to succeed. And, uh, and poor Avelio was just battling the weather to the point where he felt that he was personally, personally attacking him. <laughs> so, so that was a problem. And one of the things that I've noticed also is that aside from the lack of predictability in, in the climate, we've, um, uh, the rain, I don't, I don't well, in Thailand, I, I imagine, Thailand is pretty tropical, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Okay, so so you're aware of how strong the, the rains can be when they come down. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, really, really powerful, you know, roof-beating kinds of fog-busting rains. Well, they're coming down harder now. The clouds are carrying more water. And so uh, it's really a significant difference uh, from what, what we used to experience as a hard range and now just a deluge. Uh, and um, used to last for an hour or so, and now it can last a much, much longer. So that's, that's a definitely a change. And well, another is that we've been seeing some more of the lowland avian life um, moving uphill uh, into our area. Um, certain birds that are, are characteristic of the, of the lowlands, the dry tropical forest, you know, are moving up uphill because it's too hot down there. Yeah. So, you know, there, in, the, in the 20 years I've been here, there have been some significant changes. Um, plus, we have earthquakes, you know, that always makes things interesting, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously, as if there wasn't enough. As if there was yes, exactly, exactly. So yes, in a, in a sense, I did want to keep a, a record of what what I was seeing and, and um, observing around us, um, because I knew that it was it was changing. And at some point, um, you know, one could look back at that book and say, "Wow, you know, in 1980, the year 2000, things were this way, and now they're totally different." Yeah. So. Um. Well, yeah, so, I mean, Avilio, he had many difficulties while farming, uh, like we mentioned, from wild animals to unpredictable weather, but eventually he starts getting the hang of it. Like, he starts getting, you know, starts excelling at organic gardening, or I guess at this point, like, it's, it's a full-on farm, um, but he has to give up. The garden was eventually, you know, eventually met its demise. I'm not sure if you want to talk about that, uh, exactly what happened, or if you want to say that. But, like, can you talk a little bit about the experience of, like, I mean, you at this point, you and Avelio are so invested in this garden. That must have been uh, a pretty profound loss when you, when that, you know, when it didn't pan out as you thought it would. 
Well, it was a it was a, an environmental disaster. The, he had planted the garden along the fence line, and um, the property on the other side was pasture, and uh, it had been formerly a scrub, and even before that, it had been part of an orchard that extended onto our property. Uh, and um, they just a couple of guys came through with um, gasoline-powered pumps on their backs spraying um, Roundup um, to cut back on the um, Roundup works on, on big leafed plants, you know, not on grass. So you get rid of the big stuff and um, the grass is left, you know, for the animals. So, um, <coughs> pardon me, um, that, that just took, that just it obliterated the garden completely. There was a breeze that day, it was blowing right at us and uh, um, it was just heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. It, it seemed as so. It seemed as that. I mean, you had such an such an investment in this farm at that point. Um, you know, you'd even started seeing some return on your investment. Um, but then, you know, because of the actions of someone else, and because of you know, and like you mentioned, an environmental disaster, your farm is now no longer running. Right. I mean, it's that's right. No fault of your own. That's right. No, it was simply totally unpredictable. And um, a lot of these country guys um, grew up using these chemicals and not really knowing how. They don't wear protective clothing. They don't, um, um, you know, the owners of the properties don't insist. Uh, um, it's um, it's sad because um, this is a very important watershed where, um, where I'm living. And um, in fact, UNICEF declared it the southern border of um, one of the most important watersheds in Central America. It's huge. Wow. And um, so the lake uh, actually functions as a hydroelectric um, reservoir. And... Um, Anything you spray on the ground around here is going to run into the lake sooner or later. Right. You know? So the use of all these chemicals is um, is endangering the water supply, and uh, um, there's there's just not enough um, resources on the part of the institutions that are responsible for the care of the environment, for example, um, um, for them to to monitor this kind of stuff, and um, that was one of the things that I got involved in with one of the NGOs I was working for earlier um, was trying to get the attention of uh, the institutions like the Institution of the Ministry of the Environment, the Ministry of Agriculture, the Ministry of Health. Uh, we tried to put these people together to, to begin to try to work at solving some of these problems. Um, and, you know, mechanics, for example, um, would just take the oil that they had taken out of your car and pour it in the gutter in the street. Um, wow. And where did that go? That would go in, that went right into the watershed. So um, there were things like that that needed to be solved. And, you know, we did solve some of those problems, but um, not all of them. Yeah. I was going to ask, because I know you did some some pretty substantial environmental work when you were there. So just like you just touched upon, but what are... Was that one of the biggest successes that you had? What were some of the biggest successes and how difficult was that 
managing, I mean, it's hard enough in America getting environmental wins. It's got to be even more difficult in a different country when you don't speak the language, you know, potentially. Um, well, I speak the language now. <laughs> okay, yeah. Or I, I couldn't have I done all the work that I did. Yeah, and in fact, um, uh, frequently I was the, um, the only Spanish speaker, you know, in the group that, that I was working with. So I ended up having to do all the writing and the, <laughs> and the wow. talking and the presenting and so on. But the, um, uh, we succeeded in several important things. There was a sawmill in the middle of a residential area, you know, which was affecting the health of the people living there. We got that closed. Um, there was an open air dump that had been used by the municipality for, I don't know, a hundred years. We got that closed. Um, there were some developers who were um, putting up gated or trying to put up gated communities around the lake um, without paying any attention to whether they had good water sources or uh, drainage. None of the, the environmental laws in this country are terrific. Just there's nobody around to make sure that they're being observed. Hmm. So we took it upon ourselves as as an environmental organization to to call attention to the institutions and say, hey, you know, there's a guy over here selling lots and there's no water. Yeah, we succeeded in shutting down two of those guys um, who, were, who were planning on big developments. And, um, yeah, and that, and that kind of discouraged others from, from attempting to do the same. And, and at that point, too, the, the, uh, the worldwide recession hit. And so construction you know just fell through the floor so that helped actually oh wow interesting wow yeah it's it is it is interesting how oftentimes those successes can come from the most you know the oddest of places like a world recession or just something that will (laughs) slow down an otherwise potentially unsustainable growth um (laughs) yeah yeah um but yeah, so, you know, we've talked a lot about conservation, but like as we touched upon earlier, the book is also equally about you and your life. Um, and a lot of it was beautiful and incredible being in this new country, but a lot of it was difficult. Um, you know, you mentioned how your uh, husband at the time was consumed by alcoholism. Um, but then there was even some some darker side uh, to his, you know, to his personality and it, and it ended up in a pretty gruesome suicide on his part. Um, I'm not sure how much you want to talk about that, but like, how did that, I can only imagine the impact that had on you at the time, even though you weren't still together, just hearing that news um, must've been very intense. Yeah, it was. Um, He, um, I think he planned this for a long time. He, he and my father were friends. Um, he was 17 years older than I was, and so he was actually closer in age to my parents than, than, than to me. Um, so they became buddies, and um, my father died in 2002. 2002? 2003. And I... Um, that that was kind of, kind of cut an umbilical cord for for my husband, my ex husband, because um, he had felt accepted by my family and at least by my father, and um, 
um, found he had a friend there. And when, when my father died, uh, I think that was an important loss for him. But I think uh, he'd been planning this for a long time because he he had a girlfriend who was living in the house with him, and he was um, he liked to show off. He liked to he'd like to um, to uh, you know dress your lady in diamonds and furs and and uh, um, so in this case it wasn't diamonds and furs but he was buying her family refrigerators he bought a brother of hers a boat uh, he was just spending money like like crazy and uh, eventually um, sold his house and um, then he was renting for a while and um, he ran out of money uh, to the point where um, he had to ask his landlady who was a personal friend if uh, if he could stay a couple months more, and uh, um, she agreed, uh, and um, one day he just took his little boat with the electric motor and the battery out into the middle of the lake. He was smashed. People saw him, um, and he tied the battery around his neck and went overboard. So, um, I mean, it was a pretty traumatic. He had apparently called his daughters ahead of time to tell them what he was going to do. I, I was just this was six years after we had been separated, divorced. So um, I was not really aware of where he was going with this. But the, the friend who was his landlady called me at one point. And she said, "I think that, that I think he's going to commit suicide." And uh, I said, "Well, Christina, there's nothing I can do about that because he he doesn't talk with me." Um, um, I think if I, I don't think I could have helped in any way, yeah. quite frankly. He resent, he resented me terribly, and um, um, no, I, I didn't feel responsible for it when when it happened. Uh, I just felt a tremendous, yes, shock, of course, but um, sadness at the decisions. You know. One of the things you learn late in life, at least I think a lot of people do, is that life is a matter of choices. You know, you choose one road over another, um, and that leads you down a certain path, and um, he chose the wrong one. And it made me very, very sad to think about what he could have done differently, because he was a very bright, very creative, and, and, and funny, uh, charming individual. Um, I mean, alcoholism is a disease. There's no question about it. Um, and there are definitely alcoholic personalities, whether they drink or not. Um, and that was that was him. Right. And, and I don't know to what degree he could have made different choices, quite frankly. But um, I certainly can't judge him for having chosen the road that he chose um, because that was it, it was either inevitable or it was um, you know I really don't know this is a, a, a diff I have not figured this out <laughs> I guess a lot of people haven't figured this out yeah and it's one of those things that we probably won't you know it's it's hard enough to figure our own selves out but then again to to try and work through someone else's issue or pain or difficulty yeah you, tr you yeah you, you try you know you try to help and um you just keep failing until finally the failures build up to the point where you just um 
don't want to fail anymore. <laughs> That's basically what happened to me. I just said, I have to have a life of my own. So, yeah. um, that's why I left. Yeah. And it seems like you made the right choice. I mean, as difficult as it was, it seems like you were able to find beauty on the other end of it. And, you know, one of the biggest, my favorite passages that we alluded to earlier, but was that, that oneness that you experienced with when you were diving with sea lions before, I believe before you'd even moved to Costa Rica. Oh yes, that was what, but you know, it's interesting. It was a, uh, I think that was one of the things that persuaded me that uh, I wanted to get out of my, my, my stressful life in the city and, and reconnect with the natural world. Um, we went to the Galapagos, I think it was at Christmas in 1988, and um, uh, my ex-husband was not a real swimmer, so he did most of the land excursions and I did all the water excursions. So I was, I had experienced snorkeling before. So we were in a, um, there was a small group of us and, and a guide, of course. And uh, I kind of swam away from, from the group because I just wanted to enjoy the, the coral. We were in a, a volcanic crater and it was quite shallow. So the water was warm enough for uh, corals to grow. And uh, there were giant red starfish and it was just gorgeous and all of a sudden on the other side of my mask were a pair of big brown eyes looking hmm. right in me you know in at me and um i heard this voice say i don't know where it came from inside my head outside somewhere i wish you no harm mm, yeah and then that animal started to play with me he started to um, swirl around me, blow bubbles, and all of a sudden there were three of them. And um, it was just, it was funny. It was fun. It was, uh, I was, I, I had crossed a barrier. I was, I was playing with these, these animals. And um, unfortunately, it, I, I couldn't do it for very long because I, I, I couldn't stay underwater very long because of the snorkel. Right. And I, I got a mouthful of seawater and I had, I had to get up above, above, uh, um, the level of the water and you know, cough it out and so on, but uh, it was just transformative. Uh, I had never felt such joy, pure, unadulterated joy in my life as I had at that moment with those animals. And uh, it, it just, I was filled with love and gratitude and just, and it was that experience that I know that that's not unique. I know a lot of other people have had those kinds of experiences with whales and dolphins and, and uh, sea lions. And, um, so I, uh, I, I'm perfectly confident that, that what I experienced was real. Um, and it changed me. It made me want to experience more things like that. And uh, certainly wasn't experiencing them in Philadelphia. Yeah. So I think that really helped to pave pave the way for the decision that we eventually took to um, to move to Costa Rica. I was perfectly happy to make that move. Um, in one sense, I was hoping it would save our marriage because it was not really a very happy one. Um, but also, I just wanted to reconnect with nature, and that that sense of oneness and of, of being just so perfectly a part of what is, I really think of as the real world, 
um, is it's it's um, for me it's 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 the spiritual experience. I really can connect at a divine level and um, feel such immense gratitude. Um, I read once in a in a a, a book that um, the only true prayer is a prayer of gratitude, hmm. and that really changed my whole approach to uh, to um, my sense of the divine. I'm not a practicing uh, religionist, uh, but I have a very strong sense of of spirituality. So, and that is definitely fed by by living in a natural environment. Yeah, and that brings me to a very similar, like one of my other favorite passages. And I feel like both of these together, these these passages really do a great job of explaining the peace that nature brings and the the sense of oneness and presence that I can bring. Uh, but it goes like this. Is, there was a time in my life I lived on deadlines. Here, I've had to learn to let that artificial sense of urgency and all the attendant adrenaline go. I feel like that resonates so well with today's, you know, current climate. I feel like that's been going on for years where people have had that sense of urgency. And you're right. The fact that you mentioned it's artificial, I mean, the opposite of natural. I just think it's such a beautiful passage. How did your move to Costa Rica strengthen you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh how did your move to Costa Rica strengthen your, your connection to nature in the present moment? How much did you feel that strength? Well, I just, we, we found this property, for example, uh, that uh, with just this long view. And, you know, you don't get long views in a city unless you're, you know, 27 stories high. But, um, you know, if you live in a townhouse, uh, you know, on a small street and you're walking in small streets to get to work and so on, you just, you don't have these long um perspectives right. and the view from that house was fabulous it just looked south towards the mountains in it um it was just green i love green and uh i just felt my soul opening up <laughs> you know i felt like i'd been closed in like a like a little in a shell uh living the life i had been living in the city and, and uh, all of a sudden there was this wide angle lens looking out on uh on uh, something very beautiful. <laughs> I like the way that you put that a lot, like how it kind of, it opens your perspective and enhances your your sense of vision and your sense of ability to really notice the outside world. I can get really tunnel visioned if I'm in front of a computer or if I'm working or anything that feels, as you would put it, natural, excuse me, artificial. Um, mm -hmm. And just widening that there's nothing stronger than widening that with nature. No, I don't think there is. I think you're absolutely right, Brian. <laughs> well, I think you're right. And and I love the fact that you, these, these pieces of beauty, these, you know, these touch points and connected tissue back to nature and back to oneness and presence are th throughout the book. And I know I was at a sense of peace when reading many passages in it. And, and oftentimes it was sad and it was, intense and you know there's a lot that goes on in this it was a uh, an incredible read and i'm gonna recommend it to everyone i see who's who fits the mold i think would enjoy it um oh, so, thank you that's very kind 
Absolutely. Uh, let's, um, you know, where can people get their hands on a copy of Avila's Garden? Um, and what are some other works that you have uh, written that are out there? I know you've written a lot more, so let's, you know, let's talk about that too. Well, uh, yeah, I kind of um, uh, hit a point in my life where I felt I, I had to jump off a cliff and, and reevaluate. And that um, was here when I was living here. And um, I had always wanted to get on a freighter and write a book. <laughs> now, where, where I ever picked up that idea, I have no idea. But I've always loved the ocean. I've loved boats. And I, I spent a lot of time um, in that environment, you know, growing up. And... Uh, and somewhere I had this romantic notion that either just get on a freighter and go forever and, and write a book. So I I did. I booked a freighter trip, a 49-day freighter trip around the South Pacific in, in the winter, <laughs> which was, you know, you don't, you don't go to the South Pacific in the winter. You go in the, you go in the southern summer, you know, which would be December, January, February, but no, I went in July, June, July. <laughs> anyway. Um, it was uh, it was fascinating. I loved being on the on the water. It was just again the sense of uh, of eternity. You you just you go up to the bridge and you the huge windows up there and you just look out and it's endless. It just doesn't stop and you are all alone out there. Of course, there's this big ship behind you, but there's uh, you you are you have this sense of being just completely connected. It's wonderful, yeah. just really wonderful. So the book I wrote is uh, not uh, that spiritual, but it's uh, a little bit. Um, and it uh, it really just is a log. I kept a, a, a personal log of, of, of my daily, a ship's log, if you will. Uh, so it's 49 days. It's called Letters from the Pacific, 49 Days on a Cargo Ship. And um, that was a fun, a fun book to write, and, and it's a fun read also. Um, that travel on freighters is really interesting. There, the, 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 on the, the trip across the Atlantic, there were no passengers at all except myself, which was pretty boring. So I studied Italian on the way over. You have to, you have to kind of make a routine for yourself in a situation like that, or you'll go crazy. Um, but most of the time, when I've been on board a ship, uh, there have been other people who are very interesting. I think they sort of self-select for being, for being interesting people who travel on freighters. So that, that that book was called Journey to the Joie de Vivre. The Joie de Vivre is the joy of life, and I was looking for that very specifically when I took that trip, and um, and I found it. Wow. When you look for it, you find that's it. Very impressive. Um, this, uh, <laughs> I was going to say that's very impressive seeing this house. You know, it doesn't matter the age, but a lot of people will find themselves in complacency and not push themselves out of the limit. But you know, considering age on top of that or potential health issues, you know, with your back. That is very incredibly impressive and also very inspiring to hear that you just decided. I mean, I read that in your bio that you just decided to do that and you did it. I mean, how many people can say that? Well, I love to travel. And the nice thing about traveling on a, on a ship, not only in a cruise ship with 3000 other passengers, I mean, uh, a working ship is, um, You've got a comfortable cabin, which functions like a hotel room. You've got your own bathroom and, and all the necessary furniture and, and a port hole to look out at the ocean in and uh, through. 
and uh, so the and the, ship, and the ship does all the traveling for you. You don't have to run and catch trains and um and and the food sometimes is okay. Once it was just terrible, but um, so you, it's not gourmet by any by any stretch of the imagination. But it's food, and um, so it's you're, you're in a traveling you're in a, a sailing hotel basically, and it's very comfortable. So yeah, I mean I I, I love seeing new places and, and doing new things, and um, I'm so grateful that I've had a chance to do some of those things because now I'm. Uh, there's usually an age limit on these freighters at 75, and um, I'm thinking I've got a couple years left. Maybe I can, maybe I can take one more. Wow. Well, please, well, let me know if you do, uh, if and when. I would love to uh, <laughs> chronicle your your you know follow your story along. Yeah. I was going to say there was there was a third book that that chronicled chronicled um, uh, ten days in intensive care. Um, under having hallucinations, um, that, that was a, a bleeding problem in one of the surgeries I had uh, on my back, and um, they couldn't stop the bleeding. And um, that was uh, a, a look at death square in the, in the eye. And so that's that's another kind of experience that makes you really appreciate living. <laughs> really makes you appreciate where you are and and. Uh, um, but anyway, that was, um, I call that the Magnificent Dr. Wow. And that's just a very short read. But that's also available. They're all available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and uh, Powell's.com. Um, at this point, the, the current book is not available in, in bookstores. We we're waiting to see how, how well it does online, I think, before we try to push it into stores. But um, I think it's doing well. And I really appreciate I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about it, Brian. It's, uh, um, in sharing your story and your life um, with other people is uh, when you get to be old is really um, something I people complain about. <laughs> they say, "Oh, she, she's old. She keeps telling the same old stories over and over again." But you know, it's um, it, it, it gives your life meaning to share uh, stories like that. Well, yeah, and especially if you have such an interesting story to tell. I mean, I will, I most likely, I don't, I don't often reread books. I will 100% reread this one, and I will read the other ones that you mentioned earlier. Well, that's um, very nice. Absolutely. We'll, I'll put some links uh, in the podcast description yeah. so people can find it as well. But, yeah, I can't stress enough how, uh, just how well written it is. So, um, and just the, the full array of emotions in, in your entire story. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it is very, a very compelling read. Um, and I'm a slow reader myself, so I actually got through it pretty quickly um, because I just couldn't put it down. So uh, thank you for that, and thank you so much for your time, uh, Sandra. I really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed it very much, Brian. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, yes, when you do make the third trip, please let me know, and I would love to uh, you know, talk with you before, during, and after that as well. Okay, I will. <laughs> Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care. <laughs>